one of the greatest honors that I have as pastor of this church is to share in the lives of servicemen and women. I've done that a lot through the years, but not ever at the level that I get to do that here. And on this Memorial Day weekend, what we want to do as a church is pause for just a moment to acknowledge those heroes who paid the ultimate price so that you and I might have days like this where we can come to places like this and worship the Lord as we see fit. It's hard to do this because the people that we want to honor by definition are not here. So what we want to do today is to acknowledge their sacrifice this way. If you are the family member of someone who gave their life in battle, if you had the privilege of serving side by side with someone who gave their life, we want to ask you to stand in their honor right now. If you would just do that, please. If you knew someone served with someone who died in battle, uh, who gave their life for freedom's cause, or if you're a family member of someone who did. As a church, we want you to know, especially if you're a family member of those, um, we love you and we appreciate you and we're going to pray now as a church, all right? So let's join together and pray. And Father, these who are standing represent real-life connections with these heroes who have given their lives so that we might have freedom, so that we might worship as we see fit. And so in honor of those who have gone, those to whom we cannot go now and say thank you, to these who have invested in their lives side by side with those heroes, we honor and we thank you and we acknowledge them as well. And we pray your blessings on them. We pray your blessings on our country that we might continue to be a place that people can look to, a place that people can count on for freedom's sake and ultimately so that we might point them to the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now take your Bibles, if you will, and go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We continue our series entitled Love Works, and we're working our way through. Well, actually, to be honest with you, we're working our way into 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it's doubtful that we're going to get through all 15 of these statements that Paul makes about what love looks like as it is working, uh, but we're going to make a good old-fashioned effort to uh, cover enough ground so that the ground might cover us well, and we might live out what Paul says as it relates to love works. And today we pick up uh, a couple of words three to be exact, that begin to push us into this idea of rivalry. Now, over the last few days, uh, I had the opportunity to go to East Texas and see my grandchildren, and uh, we don't have that many yet, and we only have one set that's a brother and a sister combination. And so our grandson, Declan, has a sister who was born three months ago. So there's not a whole lot of sibling rivalry there, certainly not from the little girl side of things. But I watched my grandson a couple of times, and I was just there with them for about 24 hours, but I watched him a couple of different times when his little sister was getting the attention from his grandmother or from his mother, then the little boy, Declan, uh, began to do things to try to grab their attention because he's a glory hog like that. 
And it pushed me back into some of my background and some of the rivalries that I have uh, lived through. Now, when many of you heard that Teresa and I grew up in Odessa, uh, many of you, the first question you asked us was which high school we went to. Because, and, and actually, that's a pretty good thing. That's how I knew I was in West Texas as opposed to East Texas, because East Texans only believe Odessa has one high school. And that's that, that's that sorry, no good bunch of people who go to Permian High School. All right, now, I say it that way because I went to Odessa High School, and Permian High School were our rivals in every facet of life in that town. Even to this day, when I meet people who went to Permian High School or go to Permian High School, I have to intentionally try to be Christian with them. (laughs) All right, that's an overstatement. (laughs) It's interesting to me as we grew up in that West Texas town, in those days Permian was everything in football. They were in that streak of state championships and all of that, and Odessa High School was what Odessa High School was the team that every team in district knew that they were at least going to get one win that season. And so we lived on the short end of that stick, and so this rivalry bubbled up in all kinds of ways and all kinds of expressions in that town. And we could push that into colleges. And I've only been here almost a year now, but I saw a little bit of that, uh, at least the rhetoric of that, when UTEP was about to play New Mexico State. And uh, I see a little bit of that rivalry there. My brother lives in the Oklahoma City area. He has children who went to Kansas State, um, and his daughter now is going to Oklahoma State, and my brother hates Oklahoma University. And so when Baylor plays those schools, then we have a little bit of family rivalry. Now, here's what I want you to get from that. Rivalry by definition means that there's a certain amount of pride and a certain amount of boasting that goes in to your particular chosen team or school. But when it comes to the way we live out our lives... A little bit of sports rivalry is okay as long as we don't let it go too far. But when we start having rivalry in our relationships, whether it's in church, my program is more important than your program, my focus is better than your focus, my 9 o'clock service is better than the 11.15 service. See, we get rivalry over some of the most ridiculous stuff, really, when we get right down to it. But when it starts moving into the family unit, rivalry between a husband and a wife for the affections of their children, rivalry of the children for the affections of their mom or their dad, rivalry over competing agendas as it relates to how we're going to spend our money, those are the kind of things that set into a family situation and the relationships and have a way, just like it does in church, of just tearing it apart. Paul speaks to that rivalry reality In the book of 1 Corinthians, as we work our way through the whole book, Paul is dealing with a group of people that are living in factions. The first couple of chapters, Paul just leans in on this as he begins. You know, some of you say you're of Apollos, and some of you say you're of Peter, and some of you say that, you know, really, the really righteous ones, we follow Jesus. And Paul writes into that, and he's dealing with a church that is really not well when it comes to relationships. 
By the time we get to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul now is pushing the fix for their problems. He's not just saying, hey, y'all need to cut that out. Now Paul is leaning into the fix, and he says, here's how you fix that in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm not going to read very much of this. We'll just read four verses, all right? Beginning in verse 4, Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And finally, he says, love never ends. And so as we come into this today, what I really want us to do is consider how this sense of pride that bubbles out in rivalry kind of ways and competition kind of ways just erodes the foundation of our relationships. Comes out in our families especially in ways that we don't really think about too much. Well, some people do. Had the opportunity one time to be sitting in the living room of a family, and uh, it was not just the immediate nuclear family unit. There was, it was a little spread out, and there was a a daughter-in-law that was in there in the midst of that. And as we were watching things go along, the lady of the house went into the kitchen and she began to do some things and she was working really hard while her husband sat in the living room, stretched out in his recliner, doing, really working hard at doing nothing but relaxing. And so after we were in there for a little while, the the husband says to his wife, hey, bring me some coffee. Now, that might play out in your house all the time. But in this case, the interesting part of this was the daughter-in-law, who was relatively new to the family, uh, didn't quite get it. And so she immediately looked at the father who was reclined in his chair, and she said this. To his, reply, to his call for coffee, the daughter-in-law looked at him and said, what's the matter with you? Your leg's broken? You can't get it yourself? Now let's just deconstruct that for a minute. <laughs> You see, this sense of pride, let me, let me put a little different term here. This sense of arrogance, when it starts playing itself out in a family unit, the definition of love is violated. Love is the investment of ourselves into the lives of other people so that they may benefit, so that they may go to places and go to levels in their lives that they could never get to on their own. But arrogance and pride of the worst kind uh, set into that situation in such a way that it is really might be better called unlove because it's elevating self as opposed to elevating somebody else. That's where we find ourselves in this passage Paul has given us a couple of positive statements. Love is patient and love is kind. But now he turns to give us eight different statements where he describes the work of love in the negative. Love is not something. So today, we're going to finish up with verse 4, where he says, and I'll read it again, love is patient and kind. Here comes the does not part. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Let me say it this way for today. Love meets people on common ground. There's two parts of that. 
There's two parts to the first part of that. Love meets people on common ground. In other words, love is not above other people because when love sets itself up above other people, then it fails to invest and it begins to see other people as you look down over your nose or over the top of your glasses, as you look down on somebody, that kind of love is actually unlove. Paul says love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Let's take the word boast first. There's some great word pictures here, just a straight word study if we were to do this. Love does not boast. The word boast there means to be a braggart. We don't use the term braggart all that often anymore. So let me turn it around a little bit and say this is the person who loves to draw attention to themselves. This is the person in your life who always needs to be heard. They always have something to say. Well, no, they have words to say. They don't always have content to it, but they always have something to say. This is the braggart, the person who wants to draw attention to themselves, even if it wounds another person. For these Christians at Corinth, they had this problem And it was playing itself out in the way they handled their spiritual gifts and the way they wanted to exercise them. And so this 1 Corinthians 13 fits in this section where Paul is addressing their problem as it comes to spiritual gifts. And their problem was pride and it was unlove towards other people. And they tried to elevate themselves in that because they wanted the the better gifts, the the showy gifts. They, They wanted the ones where they could do healings on people not the ones where they would just kind of just serve people. So Paul writes this treatise on love, and part of it is that when you find yourself pushing to be the head of the class, pushing to be the voice that everybody hears, uh, then that's not love. Love does not boast. I see this and have seen it a number of times through the years, this kind of love. Now, here, here, I just need to give you this disclaimer. It's difficult for me because what I want to do is I want to jump off of the way Paul describes it and give the positive that's on the other side. So love does not boast. What I really want to do is preach here about love being humble. But Paul doesn't write it that way, and he doesn't write it that way on purpose. Paul writes it the way he does because he is highlighting and contrasting the way they actually are acting there in Corinth as opposed to the way love functions. So for just a moment, I'm going to step out of the love does not and, and hit the humble side for a second, especially on this weekend and the emphasis that our country has today. I've known of many soldiers come back, Marines, Air Force people, Army obviously here and other places, but through the years I've, I've known a number of men and women who come out of the armed services, especially those who have been in combat. One of the things that I've noticed about them is this, for most part, not all of them, but for the most part, is this incredible deep-seated humility. Now, I know enough about some of their lives to know that they've seen and been part of some really, really horrific kind of situations that most of us would not be able to handle. And yet, as they come home and as they come back, some of the most humble people, 
There's no sense of saying, hey, let me tell you what I did or let me tell you what I went through. As a matter of fact, most of them that I've known are reluctant to even go there for a variety of reasons, I'm sure. My uncle was one of those, Uncle Joe. He was a huge guy, and he was a Marine, and he served several tours in Vietnam. I didn't know that until later in life. I might have known that he did that, but I didn't really know much about him other than he was my uncle. He was always one of my heroes. I was scared to death of him because of the, just the physical presence that he was. But he always had the, the, the tendency when we saw him to kind of pull us in close and just love on us. And so when I began to hear of some of what he did and who he was and the impact that he made on this world, it just astounded me. And through the years, I've known lots of Uncle Joe's, as it turns out who in love invest themselves for the good of somebody else, in this case, to step off into battles to secure the freedom that you and I enjoy. Paul says that love does not boast, but for just a moment on this weekend, I want us to, to use those heroes of our country as a point of reference about what love does do. Love is humble in its service. The opposite of that is that person who always wants to get one up on the other person. I've known a few of these people too. These are the ones that if you're having a conversation and say, well, you know, we went to such and such a place, they need to jump in and tell you how they've been to a better place than you have. Now, you know the kind of person I'm talking about. Matter of fact, one of the great comedy uh, characters of the last 20 years or so occurred on a comedy program. It was, this character was played by Kristen Wiig, and she was always one-upping everybody else around her. She just couldn't let it be that somebody else might have something going for them, always stepping into the conversation, whether she was invited or not, always having something to say that's about, well, I, I did this, and, and, and I, I've accomplished that, and I've, I've been there. Paul says that when that finds its way into our relationships, that we are acting out of love, not, not inside love, not within the sphere of love in our lives, but we are acting outside of that. And he says, cut it out to those Christians there. Leon Moore says it this way, love is concerned to give itself, not to assert itself. Love does not boast. The next one is another good word study for us. He says love is not arrogant. The word picture here is literally of a windbag, of someone who is puffed up. When I lived in central Texas, I had the opportunity to learn how to go hunting for wild turkeys. There is an S on the end of that, not wild turkey, but wild turkeys. And so in the process of learning how to hunt wild turkeys, one of the things that I was taught in that process, by the way, I never shot one. I took a shot at one, but I never shot one because I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. But so this guy was teaching me, this high school kid was teaching me how to hunt turkey. And he said, here's what we're going to do. And for about a week before season opened, we went out and we positioned ourselves on a fence line, a tree line, and we saw where the turkey were roosting at night. And as the sun would come up, they would fly down onto the ground. 
and they would begin their morning thing. And of course, it's in the spring, so it's mating season. And so this friend of mine had this turkey call, and he began to call these turkey up. And, and as they came up close to us, I, I watched as these, these gobblers, the male turkey, would fill this part of his anatomy with air and make himself look huge, kind of like you look after you've been lifting weights for a while. Fill that up, and those feathers would pop out because, you know, the skin was stretched. And those male turkeys would just kind of prance around there, basically wanting the female turkeys to go, whoo, he looks good. That's this word. If you happen to watch local TV and you catch the uh, commercials for one of these fitness places, You'll find this guy who finds himself in every mirror in the joint, and he says, I want to catch you looking at me, because I'm looking at me. That's this person. That's this word, the word arrogant. Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. It's not a windbag. Interesting, this word is used seven times in the New Testament. Six of them are in 1 Corinthians. This is a group of Christian people who had trouble with self. And they were arrogant. This is the person who models spiritual pride of the most unhealthy kind. This is the person who has learned it all. There's nothing left to learn, and consequently, there's no reason to listen to anybody else. The problem with these two, boasting and arrogance, is that they position us above other people. If you suffer from these, then by definition it means that you have this sense that you're better than other people. And when you're better than other people, even if you do reach down and serve them, it's out of a motive that says you need me in your life. It kills family relationships. It'll destroy even working relationships with other people. You know the person I'm talking about always stepping on other people so that they can get just a little bit further ahead for that extra recognition. These two position themselves so as to demean and diminish others. And Paul says, cut it out. I like what one writer says as it relates to this. That love frees us from constantly checking the bank account of our lives, comparing the balance with what we see in other people. This person sees themselves as superior. But there's another person that Paul brings to light here in this passage. This is all about positioning today. And this other person doesn't position themselves higher looking down at other people. This is the other end of the, of the equation. This is the person who sees themselves as less than everybody else, not in a healthy way, but in that way that says, well, I'm really not good for anything. But it's not enough for them to be there. They see what other people have and they want it. As a matter of fact, the word here is to be envy. It's related to jealousy. And in the Corinthian church, as well as I've seen in churches all across the state of Texas, that there's always this group of people that look at others and say, I, I, I want to be like that. I, I, I want to be like them. I want what they have. They're getting recognition. I want recognition. 
They're getting the resource. I want the resource. They're getting, well, I could just give you story after story that comes out of churches on this particular thing. But the, the, the root part of it is they see themselves as less than other people, and they want, and they intend to have what other people have. A number of problems with being in this particular camp, and that one of them is that people begin to do whatever they need to to get what other people have. And they begin to use other people in the way they live their life out. They have nothing to offer of loses in that case. Let me just say, before I turn to the finish line here, that for us to model love the way Paul is promoting it here means that we're going to have to fight a system in our world that believes otherwise. Have you been watching the NBA playoffs by chance? Now, I've watched what, I've, what I could. Uh, they don't show those in the airports, and I was in the airport last night, so I didn't get to see that particular game. But um, one of the things that I've found is our society elevates those people who either are great or aspire to greatness. So there's one, there's this debate in our day, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it Michael Jordan or this other guy that some call King James? Just our language emphasizes that part that says we want to elevate ourselves and we want to find others that we can respect and we elevate them to these positions. Our society pushes in hard ways and consistent ways to get us into that level of thinking that says, I will be the best in this. It's okay to want to be the best in something as long as your motive is grounded in love. You should be your best by all means. In all things, but it's always as a vehicle to invest your lives in other people so that they may be their best. Love works, it's active so that it can see other people get to where God wants them to be. Arrogance and boasting. And envy kill the deal. Let me, as we close, push you. Now, we don't have to go in your Bibles there. It's all right. But I'm just going to give you an overview, and you can go back and use this as a bit of a, uh, a, an application study, if you will. If we were to go back and look at the life of Jesus as it relates to these things Paul's talking about today, one of the best places to find the example of how Jesus did not do what Paul was saying don't do is in John chapter 4. That's the story of the Samaritan woman where Jesus, you remember that? Jesus and his disciples are moving from point A to point B. Scripture says they needed to go through Samaria, which was a shocking thing because most Jews did not go to Samaria. You know why? Because they were arrogant. They, they just, these Samaritan people were half-breeds. These Samaritan people were ones who didn't count. These Samaritan people didn't deserve the pleasure of seeing a Jew in their country. They didn't want them there anyway, but there's this rivalry that occurs between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus intentionally 
works his way through Samaria with his disciples. He gets to this place, sends his disciples into town, and there's a well there, and Jesus is waiting there, and this woman comes out. And every step of the way, every piece of the relationship between Jesus and that woman at that well reeks of love. Jesus could have, I mean, by all rights, Jesus could have stood up and said, you were created by me, so serve me. Jesus entered into this dialogue with her, and every step of the way, he exhibits love. There's no boasting. He doesn't stand up and say, hey, I'm a Jew. You have to do this. As a matter of fact, that's part of the conversation they get to. She's, she's shocked that he would even talk to her because most Jews would not. Every step of the way, Jesus extends love to her. And what I want you to see as you go back and read through that passage, notice the end result. What happens when love gets applied correctly is lives are changed to the glory of God. And so when it's all said and done with this lady, Jesus said, or the scripture says that she runs into town to tell all these people who didn't really care much for her, we think, come and meet a man who told me all about me. When Christians get love right, and we push the positioning of our society off to the side, and it's about me and my relationship with you so that I might invest in you to help you be all that God called you to be, lives are changed. You want to see a church where people just can't stay away? Find the church that loves well. Because love is the most attractive thing in our life, in our society. Only the kind of love that Jesus offers. So my question to you, as it was last week, is how's your love life? Are you loving people this way? Do you struggle a little bit with that positioning where it's just a little bit above other people and the tendency is to look down on other people? Or do you find yourself on the bottom looking up, wishing for what could be? Paul says the appropriate balance is to come in having embraced the love that God has for you and you turn that and invest it into other people. The ground is level where love works. Let's pray. As we pray, the question for you is today, have you responded to the love that Jesus Christ offers to you? Do you know him? Have you had that life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ where his love comes in and you understand that he has given his life for you, that salvation is available to you because of his love for you? If you haven't had that experience, today would be the great opportunity for you to respond to the invitation to life that Jesus gives you. If you don't know what that means, then this invitation time could be used for that. I'll be down here. We have others love to talk to you about Jesus Christ and the love that he gives and the love that he allows you to give to other people. Some of us have made that decision long since, but our love for others is a little shaky, maybe for good reason. Maybe we've been hurt by somebody. We've been attacked by others, maybe today's a good day for you to let some of that go and renew that commitment 
to live on level ground with people and love like only Jesus can help you to do. This invitation, Father, is for your glory. We ask that you would change lives even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing, please. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all.